Welcome to Sacred Realms. It's a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. Back at it and better than ever in 2023. Um, I actually, we have already technically recorded an episode in 2023, but that was which one? Q and A episode. I thought no, it was after New Year's, was it? Yeah, we recorded that after New Year's, but before we left for the trip. Oh, you're right. It was on the first, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was because <laughs> I had to like, I was editing it on the first day of our trip. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You're you're right. Oh, uh, but regardless, this is the first regular season episode of the new year. Uh, we we put it off for a few weeks. I'm glad that we did that. Uh, it truly would have been, I think, a, a very bad thing to have tried to cram this in uh, before we left for our vacations. So, uh, yeah, definitely very glad that we did not do that. But, of course, here to talk about all of that with me is my co-host, Matt Willoughby. How are you doing, Matt? I'm good. Uh, speaking of not cramming, I can't say that I had the same uh, luxury as you. I did have to do quite a bit of cramming. Uh, I moved this past weekend and uh, moving apartments and uh, or moving from your house into an apartment and trying to get all that set up and uh, ready to go and uh, just arranged and organized the right way. It was a it was an adventure. And then I went to go sit down and play uh, some Zelda yesterday and my TV power cord was MIA. And uh, that was a fun little adventure calling around everybody that helped to move to please check your vehicles to see if my TV power <laughs> cord was happened, happened to be there. And then uh, we, we happened to uh, I the one person I didn't call was your wonderful wife because she was toddler sitting uh, while you helped me move. And uh, she's always the first person that I should call because she generally speaking knows everything. So um, we went to the movie last I've, I've night. I found that to be the case. Yes. yes. Uh, we went to the movie last night and I mentioned it in passing and she goes, oh yeah, that's in our garage. I saw it the other day and uh, thought that it might be important and I'm glad that I remember where it is. So, uh, yeah, should have just called your wife. So with all that being said, Matt, how many hours of Zelda did you play today? Five-ish. Okay. Yeah, five-ish. Because it, it wasn't just the next section of the game. Right. We also reserved this episode for the tying up of loose Many ends. loose ends, yes. Uh, which I think, uh, you know, we, we compared notes a little bit earlier in the day, and I think we I think we hit all the major ones. So we can call, yeah. it, we can call it a victory, but uh, hey, uh, you know what? Sometimes there's there's nothing like a good old fashioned cram sesh for this podcast, you know, and and I'm mostly <laughs> grateful that uh, no one from my job listens to our podcast, mostly because, uh, well, I, mean, I think there's one person, but Does he's not on my team anymore. Podcast. Joseph's not my boss anymore. Oh, yeah. okay. And he's not caught up. He's all the way back at Skyward Sword. So uh, okay, he's yes. got a ways to get here. You have a safety buffer. Yeah, I've got I've got, I've got a little bit of a buffer there. <laughs> so, uh, right. and I moved teams recently. So he's still the boss of my old team, but I've got a new client list now, which just makes me so much happier. And it's just been a great, anyway. Um, all that to be said, it was a definite cram sesh. Uh, also happy to say that uh, we fixed our audio issues. Um, I don't think anything's broken anymore. We're knocking on wood. Um, and I wouldn't say nothing is broken because my computer turned into a brick while we were on vacation. So oh yeah, that's definitely broken. That is 1000% broken. It is a 10 
13 year old computer so um no it's it's, what, it's whatever macbook 11 it's the yeah. f- it's the first macbook they came out with after they got rid of the disk drive right yeah so, so like, it's the is a 2012 edition like q1 2012 so it's an 11 year old macbook and it uh, finally decided to die so i'm sans computer and i'm j- and i'm thankful for the cloud because we didn't lose all of our plot recaps from this season yeah. you know what matt it lived a it lived a good old life and to be honest what we what we don't want is like we don't want them to suffer you right know? Yeah, yeah, so. yeah no it, it went peacefully in its sleep yeah. i uh <laughs> i opened it one morning to turn it on to uh do some browsing and uh it just said nah we're done we uh it was flashing the little question mark of existential crisis <laughs> the question mark of hard drive <laughs> failure yeah. yeah so uh we're, we're we're putting it out to pasture okay. and uh there you go in the market for a new laptop of some kind or laptop replacement that'll be some unfolding drama over the coming weeks uh you know, and uh, yeah, we'll let everyone know once Matt has some new hardware. He can, I guess, I don't know what you're going to type plot recaps on for the foreseeable future, but. Well, I didn't this week. You did. Spoiler alert for a little bit later. Who did? Uh, that would be you. Yeah, I did so, that one. Yeah, um, that's fun. Yeah, we're going to have to figure that out. Okay. Next, for next week. Well, that's all good times, Matt. Uh, can't wait to talk about all of the, <laughs> I can't wait to talk about all five hours of video game that you played today. Of course, we uh, we brought in backup this week, somebody to help us uh, pick apart this whole section of the game, an infamous section of the game, uh, or at least in its, in its original GameCube release version. I think there's going to be a lot to talk about there and of course who would we who would we bring in to talk about the historical controversies of the legend of zelda series other than the one and only max nichols of bungie and hyrule interviews max how are you doing this evening good good i'm excited to be here i've been waiting to talk about the rest of this game for so long we're excited to have you back and may i just say i want to speak into the universe that uh this recording session proceed unbroken with no errors in a in just a completely smooth fashion um because <laughs> your last episode <laughs> yeah we're knocking on whatever here your last episode still like i i wake up in the middle of the night like having you know nightmares and cold sweats about that sometimes so um yeah <laughs> Let's, here's hoping here's hoping Max, uh, you know, hoping that this evening finds you well and uh, glad to hear that uh, you're excited to get into the ending of this game. I know that these last chapters of The Wind Waker hold a really special place in your heart. And uh, obviously things are starting to ramp up uh, in a pretty big way right now. I I don't think that this is uh, this particularly is a super meaty narrative chapter that's going to come next week. But from a history of game design standpoint, lots to talk about here. Absolutely. Uh, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to dig into, you know, surrounding the design of open world games and how Zelda handles them and how the Wind Waker handled them in this section in particular. Well, that sounds like the good stuff to me. Can't wait to get into it. Um, Before we do that, of course, we have a little bit of housekeeping to get into before I do the pre-written spiel i just want to update everybody on a few uh things that have happened while we've been gone on our break of course we we did take the last uh 
Well, sort of two weeks off. Um, we released an episode two weeks ago, but it was a pre-recorded bonus. And then last week we took the, the week off entirely because Matt and I were enjoying some family vacation in the mountains. We got some cold weather. Um, we had a we had a really great time. You know, we we brought the kiddo on his first plane ride and uh, that went, went surprisingly well. That went about as well as I think anybody could have hoped for. So um, really a great time. We, we got a chance to we got a chance to recharge our batteries and come back into uh, come back into this fresh and, and ready to tackle the end of this game and then get into another one after that. That does, of course, bring me to uh, the main update of, of this section, which is that uh, we did have a poll open for the last few weeks where our Patreons were able to vote for the next game that we're going to play after Wind Waker. Of course, uh, as most of our longtime listeners will remember, uh, we alternate between top-down and 3D Zelda games, uh, which means that we're up for another top-down game after Wind Waker is finished. And the winner of that poll was none other than A Link Between Worlds on the 3DS, which... Uh, I have to say the poll was pretty stacked with excellent options, but uh, A Link Between Worlds is a game that I have a lot of fondness for. And especially having played A Link to the Past within the last year, I'm very excited to see you jump into it, Matt. So I, I think that that's a really great option. I'm looking forward to that season. I'm very much looking forward to it as well. Um, looking forward to revisiting uh, the downfall timeline and uh, that link in particular, which we know uh, Link Between Worlds is a sequel to Link to the Past. It's not the same link. It's not the same link. It's nope. just in the same. It's like 100 years later. Oh, well, now I'm slightly well, first, 1% the, less the, the excited. The first half of your observation was completely I, I correct. said 1% less excited. 1%. No, so. no, no, no. But I, you were only 50% wrong in what you were saying. I know. Yeah. And I'm saying it decreases my excitement by 1%. Okay. Yeah. Well, sweet. I mean, yeah. No, I'm very excited to, that's, to that's jump like nothing in. nothing at all. I know. I'm yeah. very excited to jump into it. Uh, I played the first like five or 10 minutes of it uh, when I first got it or on the 3DS for my birthday a couple of years ago. Um, it was just a really crazy time in my life that a lot of stuff was going on. So I wasn't doing a whole lot of uh, gaming um, at that time. So I uh, didn't get too far in it, but I'm very excited to jump back into it. And I have to be honest, I'm looking forward to having it on a mobile platform again. Um, like <laughs> being glued to the TV for this season has been not my favorite thing in the world, honestly. And it's weird because like we're console gamers, mostly like a lot of destiny. I play, like we've talked a lot about, uh, I play various other RPGs, but like when doing it for the pod, it is so much easier when we can take it on the go. Like it would have been perfect to have been able to do this uh, while we were on vacation and play this section of game yeah. while we were on the plane or at the hotel or just like in transit. Like we had a three hour drive from Denver to where we stayed. So like would have been nice to have been able to do that, but we couldn't. And it was very inconvenient. And I don't know. When, when you have a minimum gaming quota, you have to put in every week. It's definitely nice to have options. Yes. Oh my gosh, you're absolutely right, Max. Like it's it's crazy how uh, how much easier it is with that portability and how used to it I got. I like I was so used to it. Yeah. Well, since since becoming a dad, most of my gaming time has taken place like in bed anyway on the Switch or the 3DS or whatever. Um, and so yeah, this has definitely been kind of an adjustment for me. Got through it just fine, you know. Managed to allocate the time and uh, thankfully the Wind Waker is a game that you can you can divvy up into pretty digestible chunks, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you can get a lot done in, you know, 
two or three hours in front of a TV with this game. For sure. Yeah. If, if this had been Breath of the Wild, then... Oh, man. Yeah, that would have been hard. <laughs> yeah, there would have been no way. But uh, <laughs> thankfully, that's not the reality that we're living in. But yeah, we're moving back to the 3DS for this next one. Max, do you... Where are you at with A Link Between Worlds, just kind of generally? Like, are you... Is that one that you have a lot of fondness for that you enjoy quite a lot? Yeah, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um it both feels fresh and nostalgic for me, which is probably not surprising. Um, you know, as a link to the past enjoyer. Uh, and it, the, there's an interesting kind of story around it, you know, in my Zelda fan life where like I was really down on the series in 2013 when this came out, right? I was, I'd been kind of disappointed more and more by every Zelda game that came out for like a good decade at that point. Um, and I'd kind of lost my faith in the series. I didn't even buy Link Between Worlds until a good month after it came out. Because um, I just wasn't interested. Uh, and then I picked it up and it was actually amazing. And it took the series back in directions that I enjoyed. And uh, I think I've replayed it on hero mode like immediately after I beat it the first time. Which is the only time I've ever done that with a Zelda game. Nice. Yeah. So, so I'm excited. To talk about that one next season. Yep, can't wait. And notably, the the last Zelda game to come out before Breath of the Wild. Um, and there's certainly lots of discussion points to be had around yep. around that as well. Um, ten, ten years ago, it was our last 2D Zelda game. Ten years. That's incredible. I mean, this the, the last thing I'm going to ask you about this, because we really do need to move on into the main episode, Max. But if you just had to take a bet on... And Matt and I actually did this in, uh, as part of our QA episode. Um, but if you had to put down a bet on when you think we'll have an announcement for our next 2D Zelda game, how how long do you think it's going to be? I, I think we'll see one within the next year or two. Yeah. Um, just kind of statistically speaking, like they, they, it's weird that they've gone this long and they sort of did it with uh, Link's Awakening. What was that? Four years ago now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, I don't think they're going to abandon it completely as like a format for Zelda games. So it's just a matter of when, what time. Yeah, I think I think my prediction was that we would have an announced 2D Zelda or top down Zelda game uh, by the end of like 2024, I think is what I said. But yeah. Also, the the external team that does their uh, like it did the Ocarina of Time, Majora's Mask remake. Grezzo. Um, Grezzo. Uh, like if they were to start a new game after doing Link's Awakening. It would be about four years later now, which is about when we'd start hearing an announcement. So I, I've always sort of thought that they'd give Grezzo a chance to make a, a, a new Zelda game. And if they did, it would be 2D probably. So. Well, I think they've earned it, know, we'll to be completely honest. So I know in our um, recap episode, I had said that I don't know that they will go back to 2D. And that was just me being kind of pessimistic. I want to be on the record of saying I hope that they do. And I never thought I'd say that. Uh, honestly, I don't know about never, but it, I've been pretty open about 2D top-down games not being my favorite style of game, but I've grown to like it a lot more through the course of this podcast, and I really hope we do get a new one. And um, I hope my pessimistic uh, outlook and prediction on our Q&A episode is wrong, and I hope that we get to see a new one soon. Well, from your mouth uh, to Papa Nintendo's ear, Matt. There we go. May, yeah. uh, may it be. May it be. All right. Well, with all that said, let's get into some housekeeping and then dive right into the episode. If you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly re-examination of The Legend of Zelda, one little slice at a time. Sacred Realms drops every Wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks. Every week, we play a new section of a Zelda game, and then we sit down here to talk and to drop our hot takes. 
If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, and be sure to leave us a review. Five-star reviews are greatly appreciated, and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod to get access to our Discord channel, listener mail, vote on what game we play next, and much more. Quick note on that Discord channel bit. I know that we kind of like I know that we shill the Discord channel quite a lot, but there's some really great stuff happening over there. If you're not involved in it yet and you're a longtime listener of this podcast, highly recommend you go get hooked into that community. Um, of course, if you listen to our QA episode last week, then you will know that uh, that was actually live recorded with interaction from the Discord channel. And we had people who were hanging out with us that whole time. Um, and that was a certified blast. Uh, I think Matt and I really enjoyed it. And, and uh, you know, our fans over in Discord have said that they felt the same way. So we will be doing more of that stuff in the future because it was a great time. Additionally, one of the benefits that Master Sword patrons and above get is that we read their names every week here on the show. Those legendary individuals are, and we have a few new ones, which is great. We love seeing that. Those legendary individuals are... Theodore, Matt, Chris, Daniel, Fallout 907, Kelso, Tiffany the Star, Daxel, Patrice, Stephanie, Darknuck, Brian, George, Mike, Dylan, Ali, Lennon, Melanie, Kolku, Aiden, Rowan, Josh, Nick, Dante, Gip, Brittany, Davey, Haru the Mighty, Derek, Albert, Mark, Andy, Cameron, Tyler, Ben, Daniel, Nick D underscore TV, Travis, Christian, Jonathan, Hyrule Interviews, aka Max Nichols, Garrett, and Drew. These are the most legendary of individuals. They are wonderful people. I would have them at my back while infiltrating a haunted ghost ship any day of the week. Hey, that's a, that's a good plug for this episode. Yeah. What can I say? I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay at some of this stuff. But without further ado, let's talk about what we played. We do that, of course, every week in the Sacred Realms Rundown, which is a six-part analysis of what we played this week and the feelings that it made us feel. Today, I think it's probably going to go through a little bit of an on-the-cuff changing process, but we'll see. Um, today, of course, we're covering The Wind Waker, Chapter 7, which deals mostly with the Triforce quest and tying up some loose ends. Part 1 of the Sacred Realms Rundown is the plot recap, this week read by me. So without further ado, let's get into it. I love it when you drop, when you do the drop for yourself. It's just like stroking your own ego. Well, that's the power that I hold as the, uh, as the primary host of the show. <laughs> if, if one day you, uh, you tried to assassinate me and take over that responsibility, then, uh, you know, well, luckily we don't live in the Terran empire, so I won't have to do that. We do not. I appreciate that very much. With the full power of the Master Sword restored, the time has come to return to Hyrule below the sea and deal with the evil king Ganon. The King of Red Lions informs us, however, that in order to do so we must first reassemble the shattered Triforce of Courage, said to be divided into eight pieces and scattered across the Great Sea. Hunting these pieces down is sure to be a monumental task, and with no idea of where to start, we decide to head back to Windfall Island to catch our breath. Our attention is diverted briefly by the hooded shopkeeper, who engages us in an errand to help him restore his new shop to profitability. We aid him in delivering a variety of exotic flora to Goron merchants scattered across the Great Sea, and are rewarded for our trouble with an incredible magic armor. We also think to swing back by Mrs. Marie's school and learn that she has a great fondness for joy pendants, which we have been collecting on our journey. After surrendering a handful of these to her, she repays us with the deed to her own private cabana island, which we can now visit and relax at whenever we like. 
We continue our explorations of the islands on the Great Sea and one day swing back by a postbox to check our mail. The mailbox informs us that we have a delivery from Tingle, and after paying the outrageous delivery fee, we see that this is a chart which contains a golden series of triangles marked on our map. Could it be that Tingle has some insight into our quest? We decide to test out this theory and head to the nearest marked grid at Overlook Island. Dodging pirate attack boats and using our hookshot to ascend the towering spire of rock, we find a hidden entrance and a small dungeon filled with enemies. Defeating these foes brings us to a chamber with the symbol of the wind on the floor. Using the Wind Waker summons an ornate chest, and within the chest is indeed one of the eight shards of the Triforce of Courage. Tingle came through after all. We proceed to the other locations on the map one at a time, overcoming a series of enemies and obstacles, and obtaining more broken shards of the Triforce. Before long, we notice that the map contains squares depicting, depicting charts as well as Triforce pieces. And at one of these squares, we defeat an armada of pirate vessels to discover that one had held an indecipherable map. We know that Tingle has expertise as a map maker, and so we take this chart to him, which he helps to interpret for a modest fee. Going to the location marked on the interpreted map and using our handy grapple, we pull up a chest from the sea floor containing another Triforce piece. Two further Triforce charts prove to be just as fruitful as the one deciphered by Tingle. Finally, we have seven pieces of the Triforce, after discovering one buried beneath the exotic cabana that we gained ownership of so recently, and are unsure of where to find the final shard. The incredible chart shows a Triforce piece overlaid on top of a ship surrounded by blue flames, and we recognize this as being the horrifying spectral galley that sometimes appears on the Great Sea at night. We have never been able to board this monstrosity before, but a possible solution comes when we discover an underground cavern on a lonely island containing the immense wreck of a ship. We carefully tread through the blasted hull of this once proud vessel, avoiding floor masters and trying to find a path using warp pots. <coughs> Finally, we discover a chest containing a chart which shows an image of the ghost ship and different phases of the moon. Using this chart once we return to the King of Red Lions, we can tell where the ghost ship will be on the Great Sea, depending on the current position of the moon in the sky. Following these directions, we go to the coordinates marked on the map and do indeed find the ghost ship, surrounded by blue flames and an unnatural storm. We sail close to the ship and find that this time we are able to approach it. The chart we found in the cave has clearly granted us access, and we board the ship to find a cargo hold infested with Redeads and Poes. We are able to push past our fear and defeat the spirits of the departed, which grants us access to an upper room and the final piece of the Triforce. With all eight pieces now reunited, the Golden Triangle reforms before our eyes. The King of Red Lions is impressed by our tenacity and resourcefulness and tells us that the time has come to return to the Tower of the Gods and reunite with Tetra below the waves. Now the custodian of the Triforce of Courage and looking more like the legendary hero than ever. This has been the plot recap. We will get now into part two, which is our takes, where we talk about this section of the game and how it made us feel. Max, I am just going to I'm going to send this straight over to you, Max. And if you wouldn't mind, could you give us a summary of what the Triforce quest actually entails as you as like you would describe it, you know, um, and, and then after that, maybe just kind of give us some general thoughts and history about 
this quest and the changes that it underwent from its, you know, GameCube to Wii U version, just like, you know, there's there's a lot to talk about here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, so kind of from a player experience perspective, you know, what this quest is, is after the Tower of the Gods, uh, the King of Red Lions kind of offhandedly mentions, like, you need to go to these temples and stuff, power up your sword, but also we should find the Triforce. Um, and at that point, before you've gone to the temples, I think you can start collecting some of these pieces. Um, and then uh, after you complete the temples, which is when most people start really turning their attention to this, uh, in order to proceed further, you have to collect all of them. So okay. the way a lot of people play through this is they, you know, they maybe find one or two while they're completing the temples. And then they end up with having the, the main bulk of this quest uh, left to still do after uh, completing the temples. Yeah. And the actual content of the quest, of course, is it's a grab bag of a bunch of side quest feeling stuff. It's like exploring treasures, uh, exploring islands, um, chasing down loose ends. Uh, like until you finish them, you can't tell the difference between a side quest that leads to a Triforce piece versus just another normal side quest. Um, and so it ends up being kind of like the, you know, the, the chronicles of the great sea here at the end where you're just going around helping people uh, and dredging up chests from the ocean floor um, until you collect all eight pieces. Yeah. And to your point, I mean, I'm trying to think in my head of which of these could have been accomplished before you actually uh, fully power up the master sword and like more importantly, get some of the items from those dungeons you know yeah there were um, a lot there were at least two that were locked behind having the hookshot yeah uh hookshot definitely is kind of the big one there um you definitely could have done the ghost ship uh beforehand um you could have done the cabana you can't one. do the ghost ship beforehand you have to the have ghost... the hookshot to get to the yeah to get wreck. to the map yeah okay so never mind not that one uh the cabana you could definitely do um some of the some yeah. of the charts i've you could definitely knock knock over those pirate ships to get that chart and get that deciphered by Tingle. Um, but to your to your point, Max, I feel like uh, this is none of this stuff is like really top of mind for most people who are playing the game. Um, like, try, you know, trying to go dungeon to dungeon and, and take care of all that stuff. It's it's hard to um, it's hard to look past the gravity of those big highlighted dungeon squares on the map. Uh, like they pull your attention they feel like what you have to do next. And also like if you're running into stuff where you still don't have the right items for it, which is very still very likely before you do those temples, then you're going to feel like, Oh, it's pointless to explore right now. I should go to the temples first. Um, you know, that's the same problem that wind Waker has throughout basically. Yeah. The, the, the imperativeness of the, the temples is, hard to ignore i think also this is unless i'm mistaken it's my first experience with a quest that is um in parallel to the main quest like generally speaking um up until now again in my experience zelda games have been pretty sequential of do the dungeon then do a thing then do the dungeon then do a thing then do a dungeon and so like it's it was it was interesting that they chose to have the oh we need to collect the triforce in a in kind of a throwaway side uh sideline conversation um it, it didn't feel 
important or and not not important it didn't feel imperative uh at the time so like well yes you have theoretically half the game to collect all eight pieces of the triforce i don't think very many people are doing that to your point max and i think that there's a very interesting conversation to be had here about whether or not nintendo ever really intended you to be doing that like obviously you can do that but i i wonder if they were hoping that people would or or that people would wait because i think there's a version of this where you kind of maybe get your first triforce piece after the tower of the gods or maybe between the two temples Mm -hmm. you know as Mm -hmm. part of like a scripted event or as part of something that you're like more uh more purposefully guided towards you know because that that is a thing that zelda games do from time to time which is that it kind of educates especially when you have to like discover several of a thing right it'll educate you very strongly through the getting of the first one and then it'll kind of remain you know in the back of your mind as like okay so now i know the i know the basic style and like method of tracking this thing down so now i can be you know looking out for those as well um but it but it is really just uh you know the the hints and the dialogue that the king of red lions gives you to really set you off on doing all of this um it's very very subtle um it really it has no sense of urgency behind it honestly and uh and so yeah i think uh you know like we've been saying i think that really results in people once they once they're done with the dungeons, they go talk to King of Red Lions again. He's just like, "Okay, cool. Now you have to do this thing. You know, it's the only thing left to do." Um, and I really just, I don't know. I feel like it. I feel like it could have been done a better way. And obviously, from the perspective of like scheduling a podcast, it works out pretty well <laughs> this way, right? But but I do think that like next time I play this game, I will be trying to sprinkle them in a little bit more, just because that sounds like a more like varied and interesting way to be spending my time progressing through the game just personally. Yeah. Uh, I I do think that was probably their intention. Um, Excuse me. Uh, I know like Josh on a previous episode definitely thinks so. Uh, And to a certain extent, designer intention doesn't really matter compared to what players are actually doing. Mm -hmm. Sadly, as speaking as a designer, I wish my attention was what mattered more than the reality of what's going on with players. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, when you're when you're designing a game, you know, ultimately what we're trying to create is an experience that for players that takes place inside their heads, right? Like, what are they feeling and thinking? Uh, so, now uh, what? And and we're responsible for that experience. Um, so when when our intention doesn't line up with what players are actually experiencing and doing, then that's kind of a that means something went wrong somewhere, right? Like we failed to actually execute our intention. Um, and the Wind Waker, uh, a lot of what goes on in the Wind Waker is just that it's it's this proto open world game, right? It came out in what two thousand three, I think, early very early two thousand three. And at that point, like what we think of as open world games now in modern games didn't really exist yet. Like Grand Theft Auto 3 had come out in 2001 um, and that was a big deal. But we didn't really get like Assassin's Creed, for instance, until 2007. Um, And I think we got like Far Cry 3 around that same time. And that those are the games that kind of like established what what is an open world game like well we uh, uh when did when did morrowind come out 
Uh, so I, I suppose I should clarify because um, you could say like Zelda one was an open world game. I'm referring more specifically to like 3d sandboxy open world games where you kind of gotcha, like, gotcha. go wherever you want. And that's just what the whole game is. is just wandering around the map and encountering stuff. Uh, that style, which is what the rest of the wild was many years later. Um, nobody had really figured it out yet. Like nobody knew how to make a world that had all the qualities of those kind of open world games at that time. Um, and so the wind waker kind of falls into what looked to my eyes, like a bunch of, uh, you know, minor mistakes or imperfections that are related to them trying to apply old ways of thinking to a more open game and not necessarily figuring it all out yet at that point in history. (laughs) And then choosing to not, try to pursue any of that anymore in, in until the, Breath of in the, the subsequent game <laughs> in the subsequent two games. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I feel like the Zelda series basically ran into this problem in the wind waker and they're basically like, we can either keep all these other trappings of Ocarina of time, um, like Metroidvania style gating with items, or we can go exploration. We can have both. And they chose to give up on the exploration. Yeah. Uh, is how it has always felt to me. Uh. <laughs> I don't think that's an unfair analysis. Um, I, I think that there's probably, you know, for a lot of reasons, this is kind of a rabbit trail talking about the development history of the series more so than this section of the game. But, you know, I, I think we can safely say that Twilight Princess after this game and then Skyward Sword after that one, um, you know, those games were, especially Twilight Princess, was designed uh with a sense of like Nintendo having an awareness of uh the the risk factor that they had with Wind Waker, you know? And maybe mm-hmm. maybe feeling uncomfortable with how some of those things paid off. Of course there was the discourse about the art style, which was a huge deal, right? Um but then I I think internally maybe I don't have any verification for this, but I, I think maybe the developers were aware of some of the things that you're saying, Max, and were similarly unhappy with the final product. Like they had all these intentions and desires for what the game would be, but felt that they weren't in a place where it turned out as strongly in execution as they would have wanted. Um, and I think when you're in that position, uh, it's a much more safe and comfortable feeling option to default to like just a grander version of a formula that, that you've really dialed in in another game, which is Ocarina of Time, you know? Yeah. For um, better or worse. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, what what are we at? Like 35 years of Zelda or something at this point? Like, there's a lot of room for people to have different interpretations of what Zelda games should be doing and when they're at their best <laughs> over so many years. Uh so I, I, I want to ask a, a kind of open-ended question for both of you guys is, it, you know, we've talked a lot about how this feels a lot like um, and is really, I think, the first iteration of Zelda attempting to pivot towards the Breath of the Wild style of open game. So, you know, I think we all agree on that. I find it interesting, and I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts about this of why did they choose this game to do this why wouldn't they just do like what skyward sword did where they put the triforce in a dungeon and go go do that like it feels like a more natural point in the series for wind waker to be doing that than it does for skyward sword to have done that like eight years later 
yeah, um, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe Max, you have a more concrete answer for this. But to me, when I was playing through this section of the game, the thing that I kept thinking was how much it was reminding me of The Legend of Zelda, you know, um, and how much like it, how similar it was to the like how similar this quest was to the overall structure of that whole game right where you're basically just kind of uh you're kind of like freewheeling around the map and discovering dungeons that contain pieces of the triforce right Mm -hmm. um and i i don't know i i think obviously there are differences right the triforce pieces in the legend of zelda are contained within like full main dungeons but also the fact that those dungeons were like prototypical dungeons you know um and and the fact that these are also similarly kind of simplistic not from an exploration standpoint like they're mostly combat based but just like the the bite-sized nature of it i guess is kind of what had it feeling similar to me and i wouldn't be surprised if um in the concept stage of development uh when they got around to trying to figure out like okay we want to have the triforce of courage we want to have you reassemble it i wouldn't be surprised if somebody had said like well hey we you know we did this similar thing in our first game um how could we update the concept for for this game you know Mm -hmm. um and I think I, I like, and I want to be, I want to, I guess, insert an opinion here because I, have, I haven't done much of that yet. But my uh, an opinion I have is I really like the pieces of the Triforce that are hidden behind either puzzles or combat um, gauntlets. Like, I think those ones are good. Um, I enjoyed that. I did not enjoy the fish them off the bottom of the ocean aspect of it. Like (laughs) I felt like that was such a weird mechanic to reuse for such a significant part of the story. Yeah. Like it makes sense for pieces of heart and for rupees and, you know, even for other, you know, whatever you want to call it. Right. Like you can put anything down there except a piece of the freaking Triforce. I mean, I definitely feel like it's a little anticlimactic to be acquiring a piece of the Triforce in the exact same way as you would be, a purple rupee. A 50 rupee piece. Yeah, yeah like, like it doesn't make sense. <laughs> I, I feel like that's fair. Yeah. So, uh, Max, what what, do you, what are your thoughts on that, I, I guess, if, if you have any? <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think um, I think they approached a lot of this game with this, this vision, this fantasy they wanted to, to give players, which is the fantasy of being a pirate, exploring the sea, finding treasure, right? Um so they made a game about exploration and you're in a boat. Uh, <laughs> and in order for exploration to be enjoyable, there has to be stuff to find, mm-hmm. right? You, you can have like intrinsic enjoyment, right? Like you see a new scene, like a, some spectacle you haven't seen before. Like you see a cool island and that's one type of enjoyment. But for the most part, a lot of players are going to want to have stuff to find, treasure to find as they're exploring. Um, so a lot of this is just around giving value to the act of exploration within this game. Um, and, and one of the, and so, you know, things that you have to collect that are required to proceed are valuable things to find. Mm-hmm. Um, not as much fun as if you found like a hookshot or something, a fire rod in, a, in an island, but, <laughs> right. uh, but you know, they are, they're a box you have to check in order to complete the game. And therefore it's a thing that's worth finding and that when you find it you're like yes i'm checking off that important checkbox and uh so so i think that's why 
they exist in this game. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a chance that like maybe they did have additional dungeons planned here, uh, and those are that was one of the one dungeons that was cut. Mm. Um, the story perspective, I, I, I presume that uh, I, I couldn't. I don't really know what order they would have decided. Like, did they write the story first so they knew they needed to give you the Triforce of Courage, or did they? decide, huh, it'd be fun if we have to find something, it'd be fun if it was the Triforce. Let's change the story to have that. Like they do that sort of thing a lot where they make they come up with an idea that seems cool and then they adjust the story for mm-hmm. it. Um, so hard to say. But. So this this sounds like a pretty good time to get into what this quest consisted of in in the original release and then the way that it functions in the wii u version i i actually had another thing i wanted to ask like it, as a well, we'll do that later then as a follow-up <laughs> to to what you said max and and i think it's a good it's a good point about the giving giving value to the exploration right like in injecting intrinsic value or it's not it's not intrinsic in this it, it, injecting value into the act of exploration is, is a big thing, right? Cause like exploring for the sake of exploring is fun to a very small group of people. I would say exploring for the sake of, um, you know, gaining is, is enjoyable to a lot larger group of people. And also that same subgroup of people who just enjoy exploring for the sake of exploring. So, and to tie it back to what we've been referencing a lot is this feels a lot like proto breath of the wild. Do you feel like this was kind of a proto version of shrines where like shrines are that, intrinsic value or the the added value of exploration like is is that kind of where do you think that there's some connective tissue here that that direction or am i grasping at straws yeah i mean there's definitely some patterns you can draw like some similarities you can you can observe between those two things right um shrines are Shrines and islands in the Wind Waker are both places that you can come across. You see them at a distance. You decide, I'm going to go there. Mm-hmm. And you get there. And there is there's some sort of mechanic or puzzle that's in a self-contained area, either on the island or in the shrine. Uh, and then you get a meaningful reward. Um, that's typically the formula both shrines and islands in the Wind Waker follow. Mm-hmm. So they're both kind of getting at this general idea, which is, we want to put meaningful gameplay and meaningful rewards for that gameplay scattered around the world in order to incentivize um, exploration and to give texture to the world as you're exploring. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think you're right to make that connection. And I think one thing that really I was seeing a lot more, and the more we talk about it, the more I'm drawing this line is, you know, the the blessing shrines where you get a hint or a clue from a NPC is a lot like finding a chart and then using that chart to go find the thing that you need. And I, like I'm seeing that connective tissue there a lot right now. So it's just one of those brainwaves that I'm having mid pod. Yeah. Well, and I, I actually think that's really interesting because a big part of this quest is at least the way that I interacted with it was going back to the incredible chart that you get mm-hmm. from Tingle. Right. And the fact that that thing basically tells you exactly where to find all the things that you need for the most part. Right. Um, <laughs> Casper's going crazy over here. Well, hi. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hey, hey, buddy. Um Incredible chart. Yeah. Uh, and so, so you get that as like kind of your main, I guess, wayfinding tool in this quest. And I, I don't actually recall. Is that the case in the GameCube version too, Max? 
Yes. Okay, cool. That's what I thought. So I guess in, in that sense, it is sort of, uh, similar to what you're talking about, Matt, you know, where, um, once you actually get to the places where these Triforce pieces are housed for the most part, like, like for the most part, you've already done most of the work once you get to it with a few exceptions, you know, uh-huh. um, but uh, I don't know. I just think that that's so interesting and it has me wondering if that was really the most satisfying way to go about this. I know that there are other hints. I know that Fishman gives you clues about each of these islands. Like, yeah. you know, if you're next to an island that contains a Triumph Fork. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was it's trying like, to remember what he called it. I was like, Trifork? No, that's not right. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like Fishman can help you out here a little bit too. Um, it, it's a difficult problem to solve, I think, because – I think that especially with eight pieces to find, uh, you don't want to make it too frustrating for the player, right? Right. Yeah, like you don't want to put them in a situation where the hints that get them to a piece of the Triforce are just like are way out of the way. And it's like if Fishman's the only one who's giving you hints, then I could see that being a very frustrating situation for a lot of players. Um because especially given that that's kind of like a one-time thing, right? Like you give Fishman bait to get that piece of the map unlocked, you know? And then after that, you know, you're usually not, especially if you forget the hint, you know, you're usually not going back to islands like, oh, I'm going to give Fishman more bait to see, like to hear the hint again and see if that's something that I'm like working on right now, you know? Quick quick note, uh, you can read the hints again on your mini map. Yeah, on the Wii U, it, it's on the Wii U, on the Wii U version. They're oh, on really? The, yeah, they're on there. Yeah, they're on the gamepad. And it, there's like a little um, so, you know, if you're on the map screen, you have your seven by seven grid. Then yeah. on the side, you have a couple little icons. And I think like mid to lower quarter section on the right side, there's a Fishman emblem. And if you filled it in, he's got a little text. That, oh, I didn't that even read. notice that. And that honestly makes Fishman kind of a jerk because he's sitting there talking like the only way that you can hear these things again is if you give him more bait. <laughs> I feel like I feel like a very video gamey thing to do would have been you give Fishman the bait and he tells you the hint and he's like if you ever want to hear this hint again just look at it on your map or whatever you know? I don't think that was there on the GameCube version though I think it was just the Wii U version so I doubt they would have changed his text line do you, do you know Max if if those are that that was only the GameCube or only the Wii U oh, okay version, cool yeah. all right so then that makes a certain amount of sense um, but I don't know I, I, I kind of came away from this feeling like the incredible chart made things just a little too easy to me yeah the they were trying to solve this problem of, you know, if, if the player has to, has to collect all of these things um, and they're sitting there and like, I want to progress the main quest. What do I do? The answer can't just be explore 100% of the game world, right? <laughs> there needs to be some bread, some, uh, you know, breadcrumb trail here, some quest log, some hits. Sure. Um, and they just, I think they landed on this one because um, it solved the problem. Uh Maybe not as elegantly as, you know, something like Breath of the Wild does. Well, uh, it, Breath of the Wild solves all its problems by just making literally everything optional. Right, right. Uh, and and it, it, the funny byproduct of this is that it turns Tingle into like a weirdly omniscient character. Like, yeah, he's weirdly. <laughs> yeah, I think the other thing. And so I, I'm actually going to go counterpoint to you, Lyndon. I think the incredible chart is very necessary because I can't 
understand most of the treasure maps. Like they all show a very zoomed in portion of a, of a map square and you get like a portion of the object within that map square. So like if you're looking at say one of the reefs or if you're even if you're looking at just even better if you're looking at an island you're looking at a portion of the island and then there's an x in the middle of the water and what island is that i don't know it's just a circle Uh, there are tons of circle islands on all of these squares like am i gonna go to every island that has a circle on it that is roughly in the shape of a that shape and like just sail around it and hope to god that i'm at the right square like man, I can tell you, I would have lost interest in that immediately. The uh, the Wii U version specifically and only adds in little icons on the map if you zoom in to show you where on each island, like you have a treasure chart to a piece of treasure. Yeah. Uh, but in the GameCube version, you had to you had to go do pattern matching. You had to look at it on one screen and then go to another sub screen and look at all the islands and try to match what you saw in your memory now to what's in front of you. And it was a very like uh, painstaking process. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I understand that that's not the most intuitive thing in the world. I think to me, a more fun version of the incredible chart would have been it's not a whole C chart. It is just like. You know, maybe it's even just uh, maybe it's even just like one square that shows the whole island that a thing is on, you know, and Mm -hmm. and you just kind of have to put that together yourself. Like it's not trying to be as difficult as like, here's a little corner of this island and Mm -hmm. you try to figure out which little corner of an island that is. Yeah, like I think if if each of the charts, if each of the Triforce charts showed the whole square and all of the islands and all of the land markers that were on it. Yeah. That that is a better version. But even even moving past charts, I think you could still have a system where three of them are charts that have to be deciphered by Tingle. Mm-hmm. And then the other three that you have, instead of just seeing a full chart where it's like, I see Triforce pieces on these grid spaces. So that means I have to go to those islands and there's a Triforce piece there, right? Uh, you just like you open up a series of charts from Tingle. It's just a depiction of the island and that works for Triforce pieces as well, right? And so from that point, so like the Overlook Island one, you know? Mm -hmm. So you go into the incredible chart and you can flip through and it's just showing you a series of, you know, depictions of these islands, not in the context of the whole Great Sea, so you don't know exactly where to go, but it could encourage you to, you know, if it's an island that you've already seen and have unlocked on your map, then you can do the investigative work and figure out which is which. And if it's not, then it incentivizes you to go and visit squares that you have not yet filled in with Fishman, right? Yeah. I think that that could have been a nice medium place between what you're talking about, Max, of just like, oh, hey, go explore the whole game world now and just hope that you figure it out, you know? And and then the other end of this thing, which is just here is an identical chart to the one you've been filling in for the whole game, but it just tells you exactly where all the Triforce pieces are, you know? Mm. Yeah. The uh, the whole matching treasure or treasure charts to the environment thing is is kind of similar ideas to like Breath of the Wild's uh, photo matching quest. Yeah, in you the know, where Champions Ballad, you find yeah. flashbacks is by matching like a scene from a photo uh, where they're both, they're both a type of puzzle that involves paying attention to the environment. Um, But for breath of the wild, it's kind of this uh, it's something that happens during gameplay, right? Like you're, you might see a a landmark off in the distance. You're like, Oh, that's the landmark from that photo. How do I get it to look like it was in that photo? And then now it's a matter of like 
wandering around in the game environment and trying and uh, paying close attention to everything in the environment to try to make it match what's in the picture. Yeah. Whereas this one, it's like comparing multiple. Whereas Wind Waker, of course, it's comparing uh, UI screens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay. We, we've kind of touched a little bit on the differences between the GameCube and Wii U version. And obviously when we talk about the Wii U remaster and the changes that it made, lots of quality of life stuff, but the main discussion point usually like around the things that they changed and the ways that they make the game better for the player, that discussion usually starts at the Triforce quest. Uh, because I think that this was the biggest pain point for players in the original version. We've talked, (coughs) we've talked in past episodes about how, you know, you hear, you hear stories all the time, um, from people who on the GameCube version hit a wall here and just don't have the motivation to, to really continue past it because it can feel like the momentum just comes to a, a screeching halt here. Um, and it takes a lot of effort to really to, to get through this part on that version. Um, and I confess that I so I played the GameCube version in college a, a very long time ago. And I do recall it being frustrating, but I don't remember the specifics of what's different between the versions. So do you feel confident enough in your ability to kind of like run run through that list, Max? Uh, maybe I might not get everything, but like in regards to the Triforce quest, um, in the GameCube version, there are more charts, right? The Wii U version only has three charts that we have to take to Tingle, I think. Yep, uh, that's right. And we get a bunch of triforce shards just straight out of treasure chests um but most or all of those triforce shards that we get out of chests in the wii u version instead were charts that we had to take to tangle uh in the gamecube versions there were a lot more of those charts we had to get deciphered which could basically double the duration of this quest right because after getting a chart from one of these little dungeon like sort of things then you have got to do the whole thing where you go pay tingle to decipher it and then you sail around to pull the chest up from the bottom of the sea so a few different things going on there one is that yeah that's just a lot of extra time to spend doing this and all of that extra time is going towards something that you know we just said a minute ago is maybe not like the most fun way to be acquiring these things. Uh, But also, I mean, that's an incredible like rupee drain on the player, right? Like I got to believe that for most players on the GameCube version that resulted in um, like a, like a a series of some pretty intense money grinding to try and be Mm -hmm. able to pay Tingle to decipher all these things. Yeah. I mean, just doing quick math there, you have to assume that at least two of the um, Triforce pieces are not, um, chart based yet yeah, the ghost ship and outside island I, I believe outside island is still um triforce piece because it's the um it's the combat gauntlet so i think the triforce piece is still there in the gamecube at level 30 um at least i, I know that it is because ign told me so um so you're looking at six charts at 380 ish rupees a pop I mean, what you're, you're talking about 20 or you're talking about 2000 rupees there like easily. That's uh that is a lot of money to be. Although. Yeah. If rupees have more value to you, then that means exploration that finds you rupees is more rewarding. Uh, so, you know, we get back to that whole adding value to exploration question. Mm-hmm. Uh, arguably, once once you have all the rupees you need, rupees become a meaningless reward. Right. Yeah. Um, well, and in fairness, Wind Waker is a game that I feel like is 
is far less stingy with its ruby drops than a lot of other Zelda games. Like, um, especially if you're kind of going out of your way to just like pick up chests whenever you see a glowing, you know, point on the ocean. Uh, and, and there are, there are lots of fun little ways to be getting rupees. Like there are a lot of mini games and stuff scattered around the world that you can be using to get like a hundred rupees at a time or whatever. Um, like the Fishman arrow <laughs> game, for yeah. instance, you know, like if you get really good at that, that's a pretty good and effective little rupee farm right there. So yeah, it doesn't sound like the biggest hassle in the world for sure, but definitely a little something extra. Um, and, uh, makes those treasure charts more important yeah sorry max you were gonna say something i was gonna say i, I had this half remembered memory of the north american version of the gamecube wind waker having simplified treasure or triforce quests even from the japanese version uh, and i just looked it up and in the japanese version of the wind waker on the gamecube one of the triforce pieces required you to do a chain of five treasure charts Ooh. where each chart led you to another chart before you actually got the Triforce chart and the Triforce piece. Yeah, because that sounds oh, miserable. Yeah, no, I am not I am not doing that. That's such a <laughs> that's such an odd how how far ahead of the North American version did the Japanese version come out? I think it was a couple months. That's such an odd Japan was late two thousand two, North America was early two thousand. That's such an odd change to be made during the localization process. I think it's definitely the sort of thing that we see less and less uh, the further that this series goes, right? I know that there were lots of subtle differences between the Japanese and North American versions in a lot of the games, um, but that's a pretty big one. I was about to say, that's not so subtle. That's like a major part of the game. Like, wow, that yeah, that's crazy to change that. But thank goodness they did. Yeah, seriously, uh, thank the Lord. <laughs> so thank, thank Daddy Nintendo. I will say that Playing on the Wii U, and I'm curious to hear Mike's thoughts on this when we catch up with him because he's playing on the GameCube. Um, on the Wii U, I did not find this quest to be super grating. Like, I I enjoyed it for what it was. Was it my favorite part of the game? No, not really. But, like, you know, I felt like it took about as long as it as it should take, you know, it, it felt like it, it was really taking up the space of time that was appropriate to the task. And, um, I don't know, like, I, I guess I enjoyed it for what it was. Uh, I definitely think that I would be having a lot, I, like cramming it all into one chunk together definitely, uh, was not my favorite way to do this. Like I said before, I think in future playthroughs of this game, I want to spread it out a bit more and that'll help it feel even more organic to, to my quest, you know? Um, but even without having done that, I, I didn't hate it. You know, this is an infamous section of the game and I, it didn't have me pulling my hair out or anything. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with that. I, I found it slightly tedious from just the pulling stuff up off the seafloor but everything that was not pulling stuff off the seafloor i really liked i liked having to go to either new islands or islands that i've been to like outset island and finding things that were inaccessible earlier that i can now go do and be rewarded for in a very uh valuable way and like some of them not only had triforce pieces but also uh, i i think i got like 1500 to 2000 rupees doing this whole 
quest like and a lot of those came from the um well the savage dungeon just yeah that's what it is yeah you. man you i i swear i got a thousand rupees in the savage dungeon like it was it was crazy or labyrinth savage labyrinth that's what it's called and uh like that was awesome i liked that um yeah i, I would say that I think spreading it out, especially for the seafloor exploration stuff, is the way to go just to kind of give yourself room to breathe through it. Um, I would probably save the dungeon, mini dungeon or uh, combat gauntlet sections for the end because it feels like a satisfying conclusion to your journey to go in and just fight all these enemies uh, that you fought throughout the entire game in one compressed area and just dominate them all but that's definitely i mean that's one that you could have done before all you need to get in there is the power bracelets right yeah that's that's true you could have done it after i mean you can go waste a bunch of time getting to floor 30 and then be unable to go those last 20 floors because you don't have the mirror shield yet. ah that's a good point then you have to redo floors one through 30 that's true i'm glad i didn't do that <laughs> that would have been annoying <laughs> yeah well i did do a version of that and it was super frustrating and i'll talk about that a bit more here in a minute i don't know max um you've given us a lot of information about this this whole little quest how do you feel about it i i think it's okay uh, <laughs> I personally do enjoy it. Like I enjoy the act of exploring the great sea overall at this point of the game when I have all the items um, and I, I'm no longer running into stuff that I can't act upon, um, which is just not enjoyable in this game when you run into something you can't do yet. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like in, in some Zelda games, it's kind of in, it's kind of aspirational, right? Like it, it kind of inspires a sense of curiosity and wonder and you're like, Oh, like trying to imagine what is going to allow you to get somewhere that you can't get to yet. And in the wind waker, I typically don't get those positive parts. I just get the, ugh, I have to come back here and I don't have a way to note it on my map. Uh, <laughs> frustrations. Uh, but all those frustrations are gone at this stage of the game, and I do love exploring the Great Sea. Um, so if if half of what I'm finding is Triforce pieces, great. I was going to explore no matter what the rewards were. So, Is that about where you're at too, Matt? Yeah, MVP to the fast sale. Man, that is a game-changing well, yeah. yeah. game experience. Fast sale combined with fast travel makes this so much more enjoyable than it ever was at the first half of the game like well and fast travel is something that they could do in the gamecube too but right yeah but yeah yes you're exactly right the addition of the swift sale um definitely makes this go by a lot quicker than i think it otherwise could um so yeah i i I definitely the wii u has got some very necessary quality of life changes to the gamecube version and it results in a in a better overall experience um i want Sorry, what, Max? Oh, I was going to say I have a few thoughts about like the experience of exploration in The Wind Waker. Oh, yeah, go for it. Um, but I, I, you can finish your thoughts. No, 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 first. I'm done. Go. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so I talked a little bit earlier about how it's kind of a proto open world game, right? Um, and they, there's a lot of stuff they hadn't figured out. Uh, so I kind of just I have a small list of notes here. Um. And like to me, one of the things that always weighed on me about the Wind Waker's exploration experience was that it's too predictable. Uh, it's divided into a grid. Every grid square has an island. Every island has at least one meaningful permanent reward on it. Um, so you kind of always know to, when to expect a new island. And you always know that when you go to that island, you're going to find something. 
um, it lacks a lot of that, like kind of that sense of organically stumbling across stuff or following your gut based on what's interesting looking. Because most of the time you're not seeing anything. You're just going to a, a square and then you know you need to find the island in that square. Uh, so like that's a that's a thing that I've always struggled with Wind Waker. And it's kind of just a side effect of the fact that it takes place on an ocean that is mostly empty water, right? Yeah. Uh, which, which is also, I mean, you know, that atmosphere is one of the biggest feathers in, in the cap of this game. But also it's yeah. kind of a... It's it's a bit of a, a monkey's paw, right? Where it, uh, it it definitely takes a toll in that way as well, right? Imagine if the islands weren't on a grid and you had to like find them with your eyeballs while swimming around on your boat, right? Like it would actually be kind of frustrating. It'd be hard to find them. Like it'd be hard to understand where you needed to look. Uh, so I don't know how they could have done it better. Um, if they ever were to make Wind Waker two. Breath of the Wild edition, you know, on the Switch Pro someday. Breath uh, of the Sea. Yes. The sea spray um, of the wild. Uh, <laughs> I like it. You know, if they ever do that, this is going to be a hard problem that they need to solve. Um, is like, how do we make it feel both more organic and like it's a thing that's happening because of my own exploratory gut and also not frustrating and like I'm missing them. Yeah. So you don't want to feel like you're passing an island in the night. Uh, I used to dream when this game was new. I dreamed I would like talk to my friends. I'd be like, man, I wish that it was like just like it, except the islands were 10 times as big. Uh, that's like the sort of thing I would tell my friends. Um, like because the islands in this game are tiny, right? There's like nothing on any of them. Uh, almost. It's usually like one point of interest sticking out of the water. But yeah, there's usually like the islands are tiny in this game. There's usually like one point of interest sticking out of the water. And that's kind of all there is. There's no there's no getting off on an island and then exploring that island because you can already see the whole island from your boat. Imagine if this game had been like a series of small continents with a bunch of satellite islands around them. Hmm. That sounds like fun to me. That'd be great. Yeah, I like more hubs. Hubs, I, I think hubs are an aspect that really drive a sense of place into a game. Yeah. Like the the towns that you have in Breath of the Wild, Terrytown, uh, Zora's Domain, uh, Rito Village, Kakariko Village, like those, et cetera, yeah. Yeah, those hub locations just do such a good job of driving a sense of unique place into an area, even within like subdividing Hyrule or subdividing, in this case, the Great Sea into more... Um, unique locations. I think that would have been really fun to have had a couple more hub locations outside of just Windfall Island and Outset Island. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, the the continent idea kind of gets back to that technical stuff I talked about in my last episode, where like the reason they could do an open world game was because they didn't have to load as much landscape. Um, so that's like that's probably one of the reasons why the islands are also small. Yeah, but in twenty. 32 when we get the legend of zelda breath of the sea spray of the wild (laughs) 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 nothing stopping him now i i will say um i do there are some islands in this game that i get up to them and i'm like i immediately have this like huge curiosity of like what what is the story behind this island why does this island look like this 
uh, like uh, Overlook Island. Um, it's got like five. It's like a, it looks like an archipelago on the map. My memory serves, but it's actually like towers yeah. mm-hmm. rising. Yeah. But there's no way to get into them. They're just and you're like, by this point, you probably know about Hyrule under the water. So like, what were these towers? Like, why are they so high up? What what's inside of them? Yeah. Um, or the the block island, the one that looks like a Minecraft. Yeah, yeah, that's the one that I was thinking of as soon as you said that. I definitely, I definitely had some fun like fictional ruminations around the how and why of where these Triforce pieces are located as we were going through this. The one that the one that I had a lot of fun with was actually the ghost ship, where it was like, oh man, okay, so high rules being flooded, the Triforce is being split up and given to like different guardians and custodians, right? And I had this idea of like, oh well what if the ghost ship was crewed by like you know, the Sheikah or something. What if it had some connection to the Shadow Temple? And then when it's wrecked and everything, that's why it's like, that's why it's infested by spirits and everything, you know, like some kind of weird connection yeah. to the, to the creepy, you know, Impa vibe of Ocarina of Time. You know, that's like, that's, that's highly, highly um, obscure and, uh, you know, th- th- that's that right. That's but it's, it's cool when it gets your brain, your head racing. Like it doesn't matter what your story ultimately is. Like if you're thinking about it and trying to imagine stories, like the game is doing its job. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. Uh, every time I collect a Triforce piece from a minion of Ganondorf, I'm like, does Ganon know that his rando Bokoblin minions over here have a piece of the Triforce? Like, <laughs> it's like this. What do they? This do? army of dark nuts was just chilling on that Triforce piece and never felt like telling Ganon, like, <laughs> "Hey, boss, <laughs> guess what we found? We what have is- a Triforce piece." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> have Have they been there since the fall of Hyrule, and they're not actually deployed by Ganon, and like they're not in contact? Like that could be. It's a whole story behind the clan of Darknuts protecting the Triforce for 800 years. Well, now we're back to the really uh, cool. We talked about this in, in your last episode, Max Tower of the Gods. But like now we're back to that really cool fictional component of the entire premise of Zelda 2, which is like that these Triforce pieces are all being or like these, uh, you know, the, the the process of getting to the Triforce of Courage is all being guarded by like a really kick ass benevolent force, you know? Um, yeah. And it, it makes me, it's like, man, it would have been so awesome if at least some of these Triforce pieces had been guarded by automatons from like the Tower of the Gods and had been in similar, similarly themed locations, you know? Yeah. Uh, all right. I'll rapid fire my last three bullet points here so we can keep okay. going. Um, one of, one of my big ones is there's not enough skills slash gameplay while traversing. And uh, this is basically talking about like the experience of actually traveling from point A to point B doesn't have enough going on in the Wind Waker compared to more modern open world games. Uh, so like one of the things this manifests in is there's no there's no like failure. You're never going to like fall off a cliff and then suddenly have to take a detour. You're never going to run into a hard enemy like a, a world boss that kills you. Like there's nothing there's no nothing that can derail you. Um, through failure in the Wind Waker, uh, unless you're going to lose to like a rando shark or something, but most people aren't doing that. I don't think. No. Uh, <laughs> and uh, another thing is that compared to something like Breath of the Wild, there isn't much kind of second to second decision making. Right, you make one decision, 
what direction am I going? And then you do it for however long it takes. Um, can, and compare that to something like Breath of the Wild, you're making decisions about where to climb, how to climb, when to jump down, where to use your paraglider, uh, which enemies am I going to fight versus avoiding. Like You're just constantly making small decisions in Breath of the Wild. Um, and similarly, like Breath of the Wild, you can set kind of a... So that's like small, very short-term gameplay loop. And Breath of the Wild, you can also have kind of this longer-term gameplay loop where you're like, I'm going to explore Elden. You can kind of set a five-hour goal for yourself. And then you're just doing a bunch of stuff in the in the meantime. And the Wind Waker doesn't really have as much of that. Uh, like, you're not seeing something in the distance and saying, like, I'm going to work over the course of two hours over to that thing I saw in the distance and explore everything between here and there. Um, there's nothing between you and whatever you can see in the Wind Waker. Yeah. Small exception here and there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think you're right. The like the the structure of this game makes something like that difficult to implement. I do wonder if it could be more like because there are islands that like especially the reef islands that you have to kind of like sail into the island and then there's like combat and stuff you can do once you get in there and treasure to find. It makes me wonder if some of these islands could have been laid out to where you had to do a little bit more ship traversal puzzle solving, you know? Yeah. Like imagine the first third of Tower of the Gods, right? Where you've got to unlock stuff and then sail the boat over through a gate that you just unlocked or something like that. Um, I think even within the confines of like island can't be too big, got to be confined to a grid space, yada, yada. I still think there could have been some of that here. And I think it would have slightly remedied a little bit of the a little bit of the lack of um, meaningful experience happening between places that you're talking about, like between places still would have been pretty, pretty bare, you know, but like, but like once you get there, there's a bit more to do on the actual boat than there is right now. Yep. I agree. Totally. Um, And and so the last thing I have on this little list I'm talking about is uh, in most triple a kind of not triple a modern open world game design um designers spend a lot of time thinking about the density of serendipitous goals for players to stumble across while they're exploring the world and this is stuff like you know a, a big goal is a uh divine beast um a medium goal is a shrine you saw in the distance and then small goals are like korok seeds uh scattered around um so like normally what you do is you see a big goal and you're like i'm going to work towards that big goal and then as you're working towards the big goal you might find or see or spot medium term goals and as you're working towards those you might do the same to smaller goals so there's kind of this 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 whole hierarchy of of goals that grab your attention and there's this whole thing that happens where you get distracted by stuff um, as you're exploring and that hugely helps create a sense of exploration. Like you are making decisions about what you're interested in investigating. And then when you investigate, you find stuff. Um, And a lot of open world games understand that, but they didn't seem to understand that so well at the time of the wind waker. Yeah. Um, So that was the last thing I had in my, my bullet point list. No, those are, those are all great (laughs) observations and it's fun because 
it's so fun to talk about this, right? Because the concept of the open world game with many, many, many things to do is kind of ubiquitous in games at the moment. Like, I, I think we're actually sort of in a transition point where a lot of studios are kind of starting to move away from this just a little bit, like slowly. But I think the last 10 years of of, of major games have been sort of dominated by stuff that has like refined this formula to an incredible degree and then like, you know, delivered a 100 plus hour game out of it, you know? Um, yeah. And so it's like really, it's, it's a formula that's maybe gone a little too far in some cases, but, uh, yeah, well, it's like, well, and so I was actually talking to Matt the other day about the whole, uh, you know, the, the news that, um, Ubisoft was working on their next Assassin's Creed game and it was one that they were actually kind of they're dialing the experience back a bit and trying to bring it back a little bit more to what the original Assassin's Creed was like, which is, you know, a, you know, a little bit less stuff to do, a little bit more focus on stealth and just kind of a bit more of a streamlined contained experience. Um because I, I, I think there is a little bit of fatigue at the moment around every single game just being, you know, a 100 like a hundreds of hours open world game with unlimited little things to do you know i think people are generally tired of the they of the uh 200 hours of clearing icons off the map yep that is one of the classic things uh that is most complained about in the witcher 3 is the whole skellige section of the map where it's just there's like a hundred or more little question marks scattered throughout the islands, a lot of them in the ocean. And it's just crappy treasure that doesn't matter. And <laughs> it's, is one of those things. It's not fun to do. It's not fun to go clear off those icons when they give you nothing. And even if they did give you something, you can't make a hundred icons in a small section of a map all be worthwhile. It's just like, that is not a fun experience for anybody. Yeah. The, uh, the newest Horizon game, um, Forbidden West, uh, I don't know if either of you played that, but the way the way the side content in that game was organized was that you had this big quest tab in your mini, on your subscreen, um, and the, it had tabs, like a Chrome browser almost, and the first tab was like main quest. The second tab was major side quests with major story stuff in them. Third qu- tab was, you know, less important side quests. Etc. And then, like the last tab was like the most throwaway garbage collectibles that nobody cares about. Um, and it, the whole thing was literally organized based on how important the content was. And I think what they expected people to do was for some players like me to only care about the first three tabs. Yep. Just played it. <laughs> and the only people who go all the way down are the people who are like collect all 900 Korok seeds or whatever. Poor souls. Yeah, n- never one of those. <laughs> never be one of those, no. in my opinion. <laughs> oh, be, well, be one of those if it makes you happy, but I'm never going to do it. I, that's, that's I guess, what I mean. Yes, yeah. I, will n- I will never be one of those. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, like I say, those are all very interesting observations, Max, and I feel like this was definitely the most appropriate part of the game to talk about them, uh, specifically because of what you said a minute ago, which is that the the guardrails are all off, the restrictions are all gone, you know, the Great Sea is your oyster at this point, you know, like everything that it can be, we now have access to, so... Definitely glad that we got into that. Before we move on to the next section, I want to ask each of you real quick just to uh, go ahead and pick a favorite Triforce shard from this whole little quest. And I'm going to let you go first, Matt. Um, I think mine would be the... Triforce s- chart number two? 
Savage Labyrinth. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. No, no, no. I mean, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, and, and I mean, was that just like, obviously that one I feel like requires much more time investment. Yeah. Than I, I kept like, it just kept going and kept going. And after the like fourth or fifth time I dropped down, I was like, man, am I like hitting the bottom of the ocean seafloor at this point? Like I, where, how am I going <laughs> this deep underground on an Island? This doesn't make any sense. And then, uh, I I actually looked it up because I was like, am I doing this right? Was I supposed to like go back up at some point? And Ijin was like, no, there's 50 floors of this. You get the Triforce piece at 30. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> cool. I'll just keep going down. We'll just keep going. It's fine. Um, but I, I enjoyed it a lot. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I want to talk about the Savage Labyrinth a bit more here in a in an upcoming section. But yeah, I figured. N- yeah, but for now, I'll uh, I'll send it to you, Max. Oh, uh, I mean, I, I have to pick the ghost ship. Um, I thought about the Cabana one, but the ghost ship takes the cake. Uh, the ghost ship is super interesting to me. I love. So I, I have a question for you, Matt. Yes. Um, did you ever see the ghost ship before you were trying to? Find yes, it? many times. And I tried to get into it every single time I saw it. I tried shooting it with bombs uh, from my cannon. I tried shooting it with arrows. I tried to sail into it. I tried to deboard the King of Red Lions and swim up to it, which caused me to drown. And um, yeah, like I, I tried every which way to get onto it before uh, yeah. the Triforce quest. Yep. So I, I didn't actually see it at all in my playthrough recently for this podcast. I didn't see it at all until I was specifically searching it out, which made me sad. Oh, it's such a um, cool thing the, to see. The ghost ship reminds me of the dragons from Breath of the Wild. Um, like it's this unique, rare, totally grabs all your attention when you see it thing that you can see off in the distance moving around the world. It gives the world a sense of life and mystery. Or um, uh, anti-life. Yes, in this case. Uh, And so I love that about the ghost ship. Um, I think it's fascinating how, like, the game tries to build up the mythology of it. Like, every fishman.kent at any of the archipelagos where it can appear is about the ghost ship. And occasionally you can find, like, you know, the caves that are just these ship graveyards. Like, you go down into them and there's just shipwreckage everywhere and you're like oh my god what's how it happened here and then you always find some clue or something related to the ghost ship in those yeah and, uh, ultimately the actual innards of the ghost ship is kind of disappointing disappointing after all that build up yeah but. yeah the inside when you actually get in the ghost ship was kind of I, I was hoping it would be bigger but finding the wreckage to get the ghost ship chart was really cool yeah i liked that yeah a lot. it was it was and i i was actually going to choose the ghost ship for mine i'll go a different direction when i get there but i i just wanted to talk about it because it hasn't come up really on the show before now um i think the ghost ship like you're saying max is one of the coolest ongoing mysteries of the game there are very few things that are as neat and atmospheric in this game as stumbling across it at night while you're just sailing around it's such it's such a crazy cool mystery uh yeah and it's one of those things that like is really it's really capitalizing on the promise of the nautical zelda game you know yeah um 
and it's always just it's so fun it's always so fun um and yeah i completely agree i wish that once we actually got on the ghost ship it had at least like several chambers or at the very least if you can't do that just make the one chamber harder you know i want to fight davy jones <laughs> yeah or at least zelda's version of davy jones i'm sorry you didn't get that matt yeah, i mean i'm sorry that i'm sorry that tentacle face wasn't guarding the the piece of the triforce um i got to fight robotic davy jones in skyward sword yeah. so i guess but i i wish that there had been like I, like you get that one ray of light in there that you can use your mirror shield with i wish that there had been maybe like a light based puzzle in there that you had to clear or at least give me like a mob of redeads or, or something. I don't know. Like, yeah, uh, you know, could have could have been capitalized on just a bit more there at the very end. But I completely agree yeah. that from a fictional standpoint, finding the wreck of the ghost ship and getting the chart from it is just really, really cool. You know, um, it's a very, very fun little narrative moment. So the one that I'm going to pick is going to be the so I, I guess I'll do the cabana since uh, since you did the ghost ship, Max. Um yeah, and, and actually this one, I said that the Savage Labyrinth might be the most time investment required, and I'm kind of rethinking that now because the cabana, obviously the process of getting there is kind of its own thing. But once you get in there, there's a lot of stuff to do in the cabana, and then once you actually make it beneath, um, I could actually see that whole that whole little sewer exploration period taking some people uh, kind of a long time to clear because it is a little easy to get lost in there, you know? Now, it's it's pretty twisty turny. Uh, more so, the reason that I really enjoy that one is because it's giving you a very classic old school Zelda environment, which is the sewer filled with rats. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> in a in a square maze. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. If if you took the the sewer experience and then threw a uh, encounter from the Savage Labyrinth in each room. You'd have a Zelda one dungeon. That is yes. true. Yes, absolutely. You would. You would. Um, the only thing and that, that would have been awesome. The only thing that I can say that I kind of would have liked to see extra from this is because there are already redeads in there. I mean, just make make this thing the bottom of the well, you know, that's that's what I had the thought of as well. Yeah. Was that with the bottom of the well? As soon as I saw the redead, I was like, hey, it's like that. There we go. <laughs> I, I love the juxtaposition of like this, this idyllic like seaside beach house and then you you find a hidden you know <laughs> passageway you're like oh what am i gonna find it's gonna be some cool treasure and then you drop down and there are redeads under your beach house do you think that the redead that you find down there is the corpse of the guy who became the door and oh, now his gosh. now his now his spirit <laughs> embodies the door and his his uh his uh corpse is just down there that's such a kakariko village thing though like in ocarina of time it was you have this idyllic town and it's got its windmill and all these happy people and then you go right underneath of it and it's like literal hell it's torture chambers you know of murdered people like there are skeletons on a rack you know it's like (laughs) oh man yeah there's definitely precedent for that (laughs) further back in the zelda series well good stuff let's go ahead and move on from part two unless anyone has something more that they want to say about the triforce quest which i don't think anybody does cool let's get into part three this is usually the dungeon map we don't have a dungeon this week um this could be a short section but i do want to take one second to talk about the savage labyrinth um and talk about kind of what it represents as a starting point in the zelda series because to my knowledge prior to this game we did not have a floor-based combat gauntlet uh 
and and we have several of them in other games after this but i think this was the first one am i right about that max yeah, I'd say so. Certainly in the 3D Zellos. Yes. Yeah. So obviously um, there's not really a whole lot to speak of here in terms of like experience design. It's just a series of rooms filled with a different collection of increasingly difficult enemies. It's fun enough in its own way. I really just appreciated it for being a very, very, very early concept on the Trial of the Sword. You know, I was going to say an early concept on um, the the boss eh, boss rush doesn't work as well nah. there. Nah, nah. Trail of the sword, I guess, is the best one. Yeah. Nah. But yeah, the, the, the combat gauntlet is always something that I really enjoy, obviously, as we've talked about in multiple previous seasons. So um, I really liked it. I liked fighting some older enemies with your new weaponry, specifically the Mothulas uh, die in one shot to fire arrows. Super fun and very rewarding. Yes, they do. Yes. You shoot one of those guys when they're flying around with a fire arrow and it disintegrates in midair. Damn it. Like a real one. Yeah, it is awesome. <laughs> I didn't know that either. Those are like the hardest enemies. in that I know. Yeah, I know. Shoot them with a fire suck. arrow. They're done. They really <laughs> suck. That room where there's three of them. Yeah. Just I actually got lucky. I only used two fire arrows because they li- two of them lined up right behind each other and it went <laughs> boop boop and killed them both. Oh, that always feels good. That's like when that it's got a collat. That's that, that. Yeah, I was gonna say when you when you nail two people with one sniper shot, mm-hmm. it's great. Um, yeah, no, I man, I, I wish I'd known that. So, spoiler alert, not spoiler alert. Why I don't know why I said that. Interesting tidbit. I still have not cleared the complete savage labyrinth oh dude that final room is so fun well no so So i really want so i tried um the first time that i went and did this i got the triforce piece got all the way down and um i thought i had one extra fairy than i actually did have and was not being as careful against that room of four dark nuts as i should have been and so got taken out set it aside came back to it earlier today i got down to floor 30 and then something about the lighting in that room I didn't realize that the wind pedestal is the glowy thing that takes you back to the entrance and just walked right into it. And it just shooped me right on back out. I was like, I was like, holy, why? That sucks. It should have a confirmation. It should be like, do you want to return? Yes or no? Defaulting to no. That sucks. Yes. So I'm going to go back and do it again now with fire arrows on the mind. But uh, yeah, that was just so frustrating. I was just like, you know what? I'll finish it later. Because the reward that you actually get for clearing all 50 levels is pretty cool. Yeah, the hero's sigil or whatever it's called. It's it's these goggles that allow you to see the health meter of all the enemies you're fighting. Yeah, the goggles look ridiculous, but they're neat. Um, (laughs) I... Yeah, yeah, it, it was it was really fun. Um, do be careful with your arrows, though. I ended with four arrows left, and the last room where um, there were a bunch of whiz robes, I actually had to use the boomerang and the sword to kill them because. So I had to wait for them to spawn in on the ground floor while avoiding four dark nuts yeah. to go and kill them because I didn't have enough arrows to kill everybody. So coming. The- oh, sorry. Go max. The trick for item um, numbers is that you can you can use the grappling hook throughout the entire dungeon to steal heart pieces and arrows and bombs from enemies. Oh, no way. That's cool. Yeah, definitely not heart pieces in hero mode, but the other things for sure. Um, 
And that is so I'm glad that the grappling hook gives you something in this dungeon because it does not give you like joy pendants or anything that you could normally get from some of those enemies. I think that's intentional because you, probably, you don't get anything from enemy drops. Yeah, yeah they probably didn't. They probably didn't want you like going into the savage labyrinth to like farm joy pendants infinitely, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and night marks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although by that point, you probably have enough of all you need for all of them. Anyways. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. What do you do with golden feathers? I have like 50 of those things and I don't know what to do with them. I have no idea. I don't I don't know. They say there's something about like Rito <laughs> women like them. And like, I know there's like one Rito guy you can give like a feather or two to. And he gives you like I don't know a treasure chart or something, um, but after that I don't know what you can. Do I mean, at a certain point, I think it. all of these are just things you're supposed to be able to sell for rupees, right? I mean, it's it's all part of the accumulation of wealth sort of thing. But the last thing I'm going to say about the Savage Labyrinth is that it just reaffirms what I think is one of my top three favorite things about this game, which is just the feel of the combat. Uh, this could get old and boring real fast. Except it doesn't because the combat in Wind Waker is excellent and I still maintain is the best combat of any of the Ocarina of Time style of Zelda games. Uh, ooh. Yeah. Ooh. That's a that's a take. Are you including <laughs> Skyward Sword in that? Uh, I feel like I have to separate that one simply because it's like even though that game is it fits in the Ocarina of Time style of game design. The combat specifically is so wildly different by like it, like intentionally, default, you know? Yeah. Okay. I, I don't think that one can, I, I don't think it can be compared against Skyward Sword. Okay. So excluding yeah. Skyward Sword. Yes, I agree with you. Cool. <laughs> I, um, yeah, uh, two quick thoughts on the Savage Labyrinth. Uh, I love that it showcases the quality of the combat when nothing else in this game really does almost nothing else like the rest of the game like this combat style is really good for having lots of enemies on screen at once and like it feels really dynamic you move fast enemies are big uh you do you know these reactive dodges that make you move around in the environment Um, there's just a lot that can go on enemies will attack you at the same time unlike say opening of time where they kind of stand back um it's all just really fun and this is where you go to actually enjoy it because it's not hard enough anyway yeah (laughs) and i think it's also really interesting piggybacking on the the way that enemies react to you is the the fact that the enemies can hurt each other i thought was really good like i pitted the darkness against themselves a lot especially when you were fighting four or six at a time like as soon as you can do one successful dodge and you get like two of them who don't have armor anymore. They just start hitting each other. And so then you're, you're, then you start like separating them and, you know, trying to get in one-on-ones to, you know, finish a couple people off Mm -hmm. and then pair pair it down. So it works so well. And that's what had me thinking about trial of the sword, which is like, obviously in trial of the sword, you have the environmental aspect added to it, which is, not present here at all, but you definitely have the strategy component of I can see the enemies that I have to deal with. What's the most effective way for me to like divide and conquer this room full of, of people, you know? And, uh, and that's, yeah, that's all I had for the Savage Labyrinth. Last thing, Savage Labyrinth has cemented in my mind 
the fact that the boomerang is my favorite combat item in this game. It is very, very good. It is it is very, very, very good. Um, yep. I also want to say shout out to enemy design. The final floor of Dark Nuts are all like dark black royal guard dark nuts who have these crazy cool helmets they look like the twilight princess dark nuts yeah but in wind waker art style they are so cool wow they're so cool excellent enemy design like wow yeah well 10 out of 10 definitely my favorite of the enemies in the game yep totally agree all right well let's go ahead and move on to part four which is bloopy trails where we talk about interesting things that diverted our attention this is the loose ends episode and so we have a lot of these main side quests that we are working on tying up um and so i i guess i'm going to open up the floor does anybody have anything that they would like to mention specifically at the top of this section I want to go first and say that the Korok seed or the Korok tree quest to revitalize the the dead Korok trees. Um, Interest like it it was fine. Um, I didn't fast travel for it because I wasn't sure if fast traveling would um, take away the potency of the water the same way that like fast traveling with the frog and Ocarina of Time makes it useless. Right. So so I didn't I also did not for the same reason. Yeah, I I don't know if that's true or not. I just decided not to risk it. It doesn't. I fast traveled after I was done and still had 12 minutes left on the timer and it it just keeps rolling. (laughs) Yeah. So um, good to know. And makes, I guess, my follow-up point to that somewhat moot, but um, how in the actual hell do you complete this on GameCube? Like, well, because it, you have 10, you have 10 minutes less and no Swift and sale. And no Swift sale. Like, and you have to change the direction of the wind manually wherever you want to go. And that's a 30-second cutscene of Link conducting things. Well, if, in and, fairness, your timer's not counting down when you're in annoyance annoyance factor annoyance factor is is still there um (laughs) how do you survive morale (laughs) yes how do you not rip your hair out and then throw your gamecube across the room um like the the complete not just the controller but the the whole whole gamecube rip it out of the wall and chuck it um that's why it has a handle exactly (laughs) so you can throw it more easily You can shot put it. (laughs) So, yeah, like it was fine. Um, I like making the little Koroks happy and seeing the trees grow as soon as you hit that last one was kind of neat and piece of heart. Sure, whatever. Um, I have 13 hearts at this point, so who cares? But um, or whatever, a full row plus three. I think that I'm just assuming it's 13. I don't know. Maybe it's more. But anyway, you know, not necessary, but it, it was neat. It was satisfying to make the little Koroks happy. That uh, that quest is always more interesting, like narratively, than it is actually playing yes. it. Like it's not fun, <laughs> not really, at least. But the possibilities of what you're doing narratively are so dang fascinating and fun sounding. Uh, you're really rooting for these little yeah, guys. Yeah, and, and going back to what I said in the episode that Josh was on where, you know, the Great Deku Tree's whole thing is like populate the islands with more trees so that the islands can grow larger and, you know, one day create a whole continent again. Like, I'm on board with that. Let's do it. Yeah, spoiler so, alert. Uh, the narrative of this timeline doesn't deal with that at all. And in yeah. fact, kind of like goes the opposite direction. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, all that to be said, um... I did that one and my thought and I even texted Lyndon while I was doing it. It was like, how, how do, how did anyone complete this on GameCube? I don't understand. Ask Mike. I will be asking Mike. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, I, you know, I think for me, so the Korok tree one was, was a big one that I still had to clear out. Um, I actually went back and, uh, I went back and visited Orca again because I had already completed up until the 300 hit challenge. Um, and I knew that I had another one to go after that. And I knew that at 500 hits, you get a heart piece. And it's not, it's like you're saying, Matt, it's not that I needed the heart piece necessarily, but I like to, that's one of those things in this game that I like to just go and be like, yeah, cool, did it, beat Orca, you know, I'm a knight or whatever. Uh, completely forgot that there's yet another level a of thousand. challenge. Yeah, a thousand Mm-mm. after that. And I, so this whole mini game is kind of frustrating to me because the cadence of like when Orca will defend and like parry against you is sort of tough to predict. And like the best way to do it is just to be incredibly cautious. Like if you were trying to do this absolutely perfectly, the way to do it would be hit him twice and then just wait for a parry opportunity. Of course, that's a quick way to spend 45 minutes doing this. And you have to keep the 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 L trigger held down the entire time to keep him targeted. And so your hand just like freaking hurts. Um, You uh, you can switch the settings, by the way, to be toggle instead of. Oh, really? Okay, well, that's nice. It's good to know um, that would definitely help from from just the fatigue standpoint, if nothing else. But yeah, I did the 500 hit challenge. It took me like three or four tries and finally got it, got that heart piece and am absolutely not going to be going and doing the 1000 challenge now for 200 rupees. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't even do the 300 or 500. I was like, once I looked up what it rewarded, I was like, it's not worth my time i don't want to sit here and mash the b button that many times to, to like get a heart piece it's not yeah. worth it uh i got i got the 300 one and, and got rupees when my wallet was full oh <laughs> no feels bad man feels bad tragedy <laughs> yeah so i did the or i did the orca quest um i'd cleared a lot of these out beforehand um i did finish out the uh the windmill ferris wheel whole thing this week and i and, did that like three weeks ago. and like relit the lighthouse and then got that heart piece chest so that was a fun little thing to take care of um i did the item trading quest as well and got the magic armor magic armor is a really cool reward to get in any zelda game uh, i wish that the item trading quest itself was a bit more substantial um to me there is still not a better item trading quest in any zelda game than in Link's awakening yeah i was gonna say i think i, I also did the item trading quest and or, the or most, the, or, you, or we should say the flower tree. Flower, quest. yeah, flower tree. The most reward. Well, it's not just that because you can also get like statues later on. To oh. get the, if you do all twelve items, like half of them are statues of various right, kinds right, or right. flags. Yeah. So it is items, okay. and the most rewarding part about the item trading quest was seeing Gorons. Yeah. Yay! They're not extinct. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> now, however many of them there are, I don't know. Will they be extinct <laughs> in a decade or two? I don't know. But there are there are three, and who knows where they. Live yeah they say they came from the south so apparently there's like more stuff further south so the the item trading quest it has zunari who's the uh you know the guy with the big coat from far away and you have the gorons who are also from far away so like the main cool thing about that whole quest to me is just knowing that they're actually saying oh yeah there are more lands beyond hyrule that's flooded yeah there's the the great sea is not just the seven by seven square there's like other stuff going on yeah and they so rarely acknowledge that in zelda games 
Like, how often do they actually say, like, there are other nations or other lands? They never do that. Yeah, I feel like it's mostly, it's like, like, other dimensions. Like, you've <laughs> like you've crossed it. You have to cross a dimensional plane in order to, like, find something else. I guess the one exception is the oracles, which both each one takes place in a different nation than Hyrule. Right, yeah. But, yeah. So, that's, that's fun. I just like hearing that kind of world-building... Uh, Thing. Yeah, uh, do, I, I'm going to send it over to you, Max. Do you have anything you want to say about the Bloopy Trails? Uh, I did. I did a whole lot of them, but I think we've already talked about pretty much all the ones that were interesting to me. Uh, just for the the reader, uh, the listeners' sake, um, since you two already know this, I actually went down every single square in the Great Sea and kept tracking in my notes app which ones i'd completed so i went i did like a whole uh lap of the entire game world in this section just because i could finally explore it all um but most of it's pretty small stuff yeah right we kind of talked about the actual side questy quests cool you know one thing that i wish there was more incentive to do what would be to clear out those fortresses in the the, the dice fortress the yeah. The, one, two, the, three, four, the, five, six. The reef islands. The reef islands. Like, just rewarding you with a treasure chart or maybe a piece of art if you're lucky, I feel like was not an incentive enough for me to go destroy all of these fortresses of Ganon's minions. And I wish there was a little bit more incentive to do a little more house cleaning. I wish you could take, like, their flags down and then, and then put each, your own flag up. Well, yeah. like, or, like, each one you clear is, like, a flag flying from the mast of the King of Red Lions or something. Oh, uh, yeah, that would be really cool. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, just something to incentivize you to to clean up some of the, the bad characters on the Great Sea. Like, yeah. I think that would be kind of neat. Agreed. Totally agreed. Uh, yeah, it, they're they're not even enjoyable, no. right? I actually have a note here that says all it says is the reefs are not fun. They're really not. Uh, they kind of suck. <laughs> they're neither rewarding nor enjoyable, and they take up six whole grid spaces of the Great Sea. So it's like it's kind of disappointing from that that perspective of things, you know? Yeah, for sure. The and also there's that uh, steel fortress, which is like where the little boats come out of. Um, and you can shoot its door and like go into it to get one of the Triforce charts. So that was kind of yeah. cool. Like more of that, please. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. They mean this. Yeah, you. you I, I wish more islands in the Wind Waker had some unique point of interest on them, like something about them that actually stood out. Uh, a lot of them have kind of weak things yeah. to, to yeah. set them apart from the others. Oh, uh, you know, one that I actually did. So I, I did the bomb island. A uh, little labyrinth this mm-hmm. week, which hadn't done before, and I think that's like a. It's either two hundred rupees or a heart piece. I can't remember which one, but uh, that's actually a fun little puzzle, which requires you to uh, use those fire centipede dudes. I, I did that one too, as like switch weights, you know. Yeah. Um, and th- and that's actually kind of a cool mechanic. I sort of, uh, I wish that that kind of thing had been done more elsewhere in the game. <laughs> Yeah, it's a heart piece, and I, I did it also. I, I liked it. It's a fun little puzzle. Yeah. It was a good way to spend 10 yeah. minutes. So That's the one that really feels like a shrine. Yes. Mm, yeah. Yeah, totally yep. agreed. All right. Well, with that being said, let's move on to part five, which is Z-targeting, where we lock on to fascinating characters or enemies that we happen to cross. Uh, Max, I'll send it to you first. Oh, I forgot to think about this. Who's a fascinating character? Um. 
if someone else has an answer on the tip of their tongue, they should go first because I need to think about this. Go for it, Matt. Go for it, Matt. You're up first. Uh, I, I, I said it earlier, but I'm just going to reiterate those uh, royal dark nuts at the bottom of the Savage Labyrinth. Just enemy design is on point. Um, the the fight was so much fun, especially when it hems you in to the middle because all those uh, Moblin statues are shooting fire at you. So you don't have as much maneuverability. Um, they're beefy, beefy, beefy boys. They do a lot of damage. And in fact, one uh, section uh, a little bit earlier introduces a new dark nut attack where they jump and spin and then hit you. And it does like six hearts on regular mode. So I imagine it does like almost that much. It does more than that you know, obviously on hero mode. So, um, big props to the, to the Royal dark nuts, but, um, yeah, I'm not going to say my honorable mention. So you guys can go. And then okay, if, you, okay. If, if neither of you take my honorable mention, I will come back to it. But yeah. So, <laughs> so for my pick, I'm actually going to go with the, the cabana itself and also like the door of the cabana. It's a sentient cabana. Yeah. It, it has thoughts and feelings and it calls you a grimy, peasant yeah exactly well it's kind of like a it's kind of like a c3po sort of thing mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. very similar vibes um and i really would like to know the story of what's going on here uh i would like mm. to know why there's like a spirit of a butler who's like in who's inhabiting the walls of this cabana and how he came to be that way and also how did he earn this eternal punishment right exactly and also like was was Mrs. Marie just like cool with this? I mean, I want to know that whole story too. Like, what is the deal? Like, what is the deal with her, with her, you know, her haunted cabana? Basically, did she kill him? Like, I, I, I really want to know. I have questions. Uh, it, it's a fun little character, you know. Uh, the the like the the dialogue is all really fun and the characterization of the door is great and you know it, it's one of those classic goofy Zelda characters and I appreciated it for that reason but just fictionally I you know I want to know what you, what did you do you know do you deserve this were you a bad person I don't know <laughs> he does feel like he belongs in Majora's Mask very much uh. Okay, uh, I, I do have a pick now. I'm going to say Maggie. Um, I don't know oh, if either of you did Maggie and Moe's Good, quest. Good pick. <laughs> but uh, I love this whole thing where the the captured Hylian maidens, uh, you know, that you free from the Forbidden Fortress, they all get ransomed back to their families on, <laughs> uh, what should we call it? Windfall. Windfall Island. Island. Windfall. Thank you. Windfall Island. And it, it, it introduces kind of a bunch of changes to like what NPCs are saying and what kind of side quests there are. <sighs> and Maggie's just fun. She has trying to, you know, send correspondence to her love, a moblin named Mo. And, uh, there's a whole side quest around getting the letter to her from Mo, and then Mo's letter is basically saying he wants to you know devour her alive <laughs> and she thinks that's like so romantic and i'm sitting here like yeah. dude she want he wants to literally eat you like not not in the fun way in the in the ouch way yeah i uh i mean again talk about your goofy zelda characters and side quests you know that's definitely kind of a definitely kind of a highlight um mo the moblin there's some like last commentary woven in there too like that's fun well there's like a little bit of a stockholm syndrome kind of element to the whole thing right 
Um, so that's a little disturbing. But uh, Mo the Moblin, I guess, is a another in a long series of like Zelda enemies who gain like story agency at some point. Like, <laughs> like the, I'm thinking of like the Hinox in uh, in a Link Between Worlds. Um, which, you know, you'll you'll meet him at some point, Matt. But it's always fun when you can like you stumble across an enemy in these games. And, you know, it's like a, an actual character of an enemy, you know, and yeah. it kind of makes you wonder, like, oh. oh, go for it, Max. I was going to say one fun part about this side quest is that the, the postman who you're working with talks about how he went to Forsaken Fortress to deliver letters to and from Mo. Um, which I just like opens up this whole thing. We're like, oh, the Moblins are like part of the society of the Great Sea. They have a concept <laughs> of male. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that's hysterical. I actually, I actually did go back to the Forsaken Fortress this week. I was curious to see if there was anything you could do there now that it's been like destroyed by Valu, and uh, there's really not. It's deserted, and once you start getting back up towards where the where uh, the crow's nest was, it's it's all broken and you can't get back up there so anywho nothing to see here at the forsaken fortress which is a really cool piece of world building it is no yeah yeah yeah. i like it i like it a lot uh but yeah good pick good pick on maggie that's a that's a great one that i feel like somebody should have scooped up and good on you for doing it max all right well with all that being said let's move on to part six which is our final thoughts where we let matt wrap up this section of the game in a succinct way as he can think to do well, my, my first uh, thought is uh, go Cowboys, beat the Bucks, woot, hooray, very happy. Um, Neat. Yes, I'm sportsman. Sports! Sportsman. Okay, uh, now back to not sports. This section of the game uh, is really about tying up uh, all the things that we need to do before we head into our final encounter with uh, the King of Evil uh, to put him back in where he belongs, which is in the dead ski. Um, we do a whole lot of exploring and it's uh, it's an area where wind waker is really breaking ground. And the first uh, Zelda game to really become uh, an open world exploration based uh adventure and um it shines in some key ways with um some really great exploration of the great sea and some uh gathering of the triforce through uh combat gauntlets and other puzzles to solve um but falls a little bit short in other areas such as just pulling it up off the off the sea floor as if it were a 50 rupee piece um the use of treasure charts and other things can be uh somewhat frustrating and ham-fisted but uh, really serves to drive value into the exploration uh that this game is trying to uh, push into the zelda series so for all of that it, it comes together uh from its side quests from its exploration from the gathering of the triforce to form a, a pretty good section of game uh, that sets us up well to go into our final confrontation uh, which will be next week where we get to finally face our foe Ganon and put him back where he belongs well done as always Matt that brings us to the end of the Sacred Realms Rundown we'll be back next week with another installment of the Sacred Realms Rundown to close out this game coming to the end of a season it always sneaks up on us always always does it's uh, it comes up fast and uh, it doesn't feel like we should be done but here we are here one, we more, are. one more week to go, and then a recap. And then a recap. 
and then we'll get into a new game. Max, we appreciate you joining us tonight. It's always a great time. And uh, I feel like these big philosophical questions and observations around the nature of game design, it's, 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 it's always a really fun conversation to have, especially in this case where we're talking about, you know, in some ways, the mainstream genesis of some of these concepts. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's one of my favorite topics on Earth. I am always happy to blab endlessly about the game design <laughs> of the series. Uh, so thanks for giving me an excuse to do it. Anytime, Max. Anytime. Well, with all that being said, we're pushing two hours. Is everyone ready to get out of here for the night? Let's do it. All righty. If you enjoyed today's show and you would like a little extra Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod and become a patron. If you've got no rupees, it's not a problem. Five-star Apple Podcast reviews are a great free way to support us. More reviews means that more people see our show. That makes us very happy Hylians. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sacred Realms Pod for updates on the podcast and for behind-the-scenes action. Sacred Realms will be back next week. Wednesday with our thoughts on the finale of the wind waker we'd love for you to play along with us and to share your thoughts on our social channels the wind waker can be played in its original form on the nintendo gamecube its remastered version can be played on the nintendo wii u and it can be played on any device capable of running a dolphin emulator in the meantime may your hearts be full may your arrows never miss we'll catch y'all next time Sacred Realms is an independent podcast production, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Our music comes from Zelda and Chill by Mikkel and is graciously provided to us by Mikkel and Game Chops Records. Zelda and Chill is available to stream on Spotify or to purchase directly from GameChops.com. Finally, our thanks go to Nintendo for creating such exceptional and innovative experiences.